From Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, what do all those leaked Pentagon and State Department documents have to do with Haiti? Everything, says Flashpoint senior producer Kevin Pina. Also, do Palestinians have the right to bear arms and fight back against illegal settlers, armed or not? And Tennessee State Senator Justin Pearson restored and made whole. No justice, no peace. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. That is my new uh, little chant. No Justins, no peace. The second uh, courageous young legislator was um, voted back into power today. He will, I think they both will together take their seats uh, tomorrow. And uh, interesting, today's resistance activities started at the Lorraine Motel, which is now a museum. It's where, uh, obviously, Martin Luther King spent his last day. Uh, and it is very interesting. In the South, you, you oftentimes, like uh, the Klan House, the White Citizens Council, places where uh, black people suffered have become museums and and celebratory uh, houses as uh, the Lorraine Museum is. And if you go and walk across the Edmund Pettys Bridge, as you walk over that bridge uh, where all the violence happened, um, you there was what was formerly the White Citizens Council, which is now a civil rights museum. It is very interesting to see how we rescue back these areas, places, regions, for instance, like Native Americans and Alcatraz. Anyway, we're hoping to find a little bit of that sound to end the program with in terms of the uh, the no Justins, no peace, taking back uh, their power. Beautiful, beautiful day and uh, beautiful people uh, taking actions for all of us young people as always leading the way. Again, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. And, uh, well, let's begin with uh, Mr. Kevin Pina. Kevin, are you with us? Hi, Dennis. How are you? Oh, I'm just dandelions. Great, uh, great to have you back. We're hearing a lot. Tell us about, uh, remind people what's been happening. We're hearing a lot about these documents. Are they from the State Department and the CIA? Uh, where are these uh, documents coming from? And why is everybody so up in arms? And what the hell does all of this have to do with Haiti? Well, you know, there are probably people who are far more expert at the origins of the so-called Pentagon leaks. Um, but, I mean, I've heard origination tales from everything from a State Department employee getting drunk and showing off to his friends while playing a game on a Discord uh, server, you know, playing a Minecraft game on a Discord server, uh, to uh, they're authentic and they're the Russians, to, you know, other people questioning their validity altogether. Um, what we do know is that there was a trove of documents, and among them was apparently a couple slides that purportedly said that Wagner Group, which are the infamous, or the, at least they're described as, you know, somehow I don't know, they're 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 somehow better than Blackwater at at killing or 
<laughs> or as Blackwater was, but they were akin to mercenaries that are reportedly fighting alongside Russian troops in Ukraine. We hear that they've been really active in Bakhmut recently, and they're really uh, described as, as just villainous in the U.S. press. Well, among these documents, it was reported that, in fact, um, they were going to send a delegation to Haiti in an attempt to drum up business. A mercenary business, right? Their calling card is to, to help folks who have the most cash, whether that be the Russian government or any other government. And apparently they were going to send a delegation to Haiti to try to drum up business. Well, uh, I first heard about this from former ambassador, U.S. Special Ambassador to Haiti, Daniel Foote, who has now become a proponent of U.S. intervention. I was very circumspect about it because, of, you know, when you hear that, and, and the way he put it was Wagner was already in Haiti, right? Wagner's in Haiti. Why is the State Department doing something about it? Well, I was kind of wondering where that came from. And then I went searching in the headlines, and I found that really the article that sort of purported that was in the Daily Mail. On the Daily Mail ran a headline, which basically said that Wagner Group had been operating in Haiti um, already. Uh, and so I can see where Daniel Foote got it, but then it was also followed up even today, by the Dominican press, which alleges that Russian mercenaries allegedly operating in Haiti under the nose of the United States, as if they're already there. When, in fact, what was in these documents was a slide that said that they had wanted to go, you know, throw their calling card down to the Haitian government to drum up business. But this, there's some hyperbole going on in the press, which now is reporting that, in fact, they've been operating on the ground. But... You know, then there's those people in the middle, like Jackie Charles at the Miami Herald, who has on Twitter, we've seen she's openly supporting the United States intervening in Haiti, saying enough is enough. Well, they come out with an article today, which also addresses this question of the Wagner group. And, and their approach is sort of in the middle. Um, but at the end of the article, she says, she says, uh, in the article by saying, um, uh, very interesting, subtle, but a call for intervention nonetheless. Then echoing what even the most strident of U.S. supporters in Haiti also noted about the Russian and Wagner Group interests, he added, maybe this will be the wake-up call that Washington needs. So what's right. very clear to me and other Haitian folks who, who've been you know, reporting on Haiti for, for, for a number of years is that this is clearly being used by some as a pretext for pushing the United States to put boots on the ground in Haiti. Now, this is following up on a poll that was done by an organization called the Premise Group, which, and by the way, nobody knows who, who ordered this poll, <laughs> but according, according to them, uh, their respondents, this poll that they did in Haiti, 44% of Haitians, when asked the question, which countries would they like to intervene in Haiti, Russia, the United States, Canada, or China? 44% said they wanted Russia to intervene in the United States. Now, this came, I'm not so sure it was such an accident that this came just before this news dropped about Wagner, the misinformation being that, there are, that they've been on the ground there, and the reality of the slide saying that they wanted to drum up business in Haiti. Um, you know, the timing is a little suspect to those of us who've been watching this for a while. Now, the truth is, anybody who knows Haiti knows that the government of Ariel Henry is a U.S.-backed client government 
that has no autonomy when it comes to its own policy, whether domestic or international. It is the core group, which is led by the United States, which is now dictating policy internally and externally for all Haitians and for the Haitian state. There is no way that Ariel Henry, as such a government, would entertain Russians coming in to help with the paramilitaries. They're not gangs anymore. They're paramilitary forces that are working in collusion with that very same government. That's the trick here, is that the gangs are not gangs. They're paramilitary forces which come from a history of having worked with the ruling PHTK party from Martelly to Jovenel Moise before he was killed, where the PHTK actually used those gangs to control neighborhoods, to, to affect the outcome of elections as their unofficial muscle, right? As, their, as, as they, could, they could claim that they had nothing to do with the violence that they were rendering upon the opposition and in certain communities in Haiti in order to alter the political landscape. It gave them plausible deniability. So how can you expect that a government that today is also continuing to, to depend on those same paramilitary forces are going to hire a third mercenary force to come into the country to eliminate them? Uh, so there's two arguments that just, just, for me, question the entire validity of the so-called Pentagon leaks. It's, leaks. it's just too convenient, Dennis. It's, 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 the, the narrative just fits the bill at this moment for those who are calling for U.S. boots on the ground. Okay, okay. Now let's, let's uh, see if you can um, restate that, make sure people understand what we're talking about here, Kevin. We're talking about uh, documents uh, widely reported being leaked. Are these, are these uh, intelligence documents, CIA documents, State Department documents? Um, say a little bit more about the documents. and Because we haven't heard... A word. We've heard a lot of speculation about how dangerous it could be in terms of sources and uh, intelligence sources and the leaks in terms of our policy towards Russia and Finland and all this stuff. Haven't heard a word uh, about Haiti. Uh, so uh, go over this well, again for us. Well, it's all over the us. press. NBC did a report today. Uh, the Miami Herald released a long uh, report on it today. It's definitely out there. And, and I got I to tell you, if, if I had any touchstone right now for trying to understand what's going on here, I'm, I'm going to, it's a little bit of speculation on my part, but it's, it's reason speculation based upon experience, many years of experience dealing with the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency and studying their role and having seen it many times live <laughs> in action. This reminds me of 1993 after the Governor's Island Accord failed. And there became open combat, an open propaganda war between the Department of State and between the Central Intelligence Agency. You might recall that the Central Intelligence Agency one week released a report that said that Aristide had been on lithium, that he had been institutionalized in a Canadian mental hospital in order to attack his character. I don't know if you recall that in 93, right? Oh, I recall that, yes. One week later, the Department of State under Clinton, right, under Clinton, uh, uh, President Clinton's Department of State 
releases a report the next week which says that the Haitian military high command had been on the CIA payroll for more than a decade and were responsible for transforming Haiti into the major transshipment point of cocaine bound for the United States. So this is what this reminds me of. This is propaganda wars that are being waged between those parts of the government that want to push for intervention, U.S. intervention, and those parts of the government which have already are on the ground that are trying to influence, that are, that are, that are maintaining U.S. hegemony and influence in the outcome of Haiti's p- politics internally and externally. That, that's what it reminds me of, Dennis. If I had any touchstone to compare this moment to, it would be that. And we, we did uncover a series of stories that have to do with the way in which uh, NPR and other networks were using Voice of America, were using uh, con- uh, sources connected to the CIA and U.S. intelligence. Uh, and in fact, at a, a certain point, I believe we did some reporting that uh, forced the Associated Press to actually go public and to, to distance themselves from the reporters and the people they were working with. Is that right? Well, absolutely. And we know that it's not just Haiti. We know that that's a regular feature of most of reporting in this country about pretty much all, all international politics when it comes to our understanding it, whether it be what we're hearing about China, whether it be what we're hearing about Russia, uh, whatever we're hearing about in the world, a lot of it is based upon access. The only way to get access is to play the game. The only way to play the game is to, is to echo and mirror and, and amplify the State Department's line. Or the CIA's line, who will drop a dime here and there into the mix in order to be a player in this world of competitive information, competitive news, if you want to call it that. Where, of course, you know, most people are, are if you just look it up and you can corroborate it, you know, it's only six corporations that own 90% of the news outlets in this country, right? And of the media in this country. And so we're really hearing. The same voices who are revolving door with government anyway. And yes, I can point to specific examples where we've seen that over and over again reflected in reporting about Haiti. And I think that this story about the Wagner Group is no exception. But in fact, I think it's a major feature of most mainstream reporting. And that includes the NPR, you know. And and NPR now is upset because they're being called government-funded radio on their Twitter accounts. Right, <laughs> and they're they're actually now. I, I understand they're going to leave Twitter because now they're they're, they're having to identify themselves as government funded, uh, a government funded institution. Where of course Twitter has in the past always uh, tagged individuals, organizations that they claim worked with Russia or represented a point of view with Russia or were attached to some Chinese news outlet. They've always had to have that little disclaimer, you know, affiliated uh, with Russian media or affiliated with Chinese media. And now, of course, NPR being labeled, uh, being forced to carry the moniker of of a government-funded media um, is revolting. So there's also double standards there, right? Kevin, what did the... um odds that the U.S. or some concoction of the U.S. is going to occupy Haiti. How, how do you expect that to look on this round? Um, I, I, I quite frankly, you know, there, there's, there's nothing there. Um, the truth is that they're more than happy to continue the killing, to continue the slow bleed of the opposition, which at its heart today continues to be 
Swami Lavalas, which is still, despite uh, despite uh, the objections of others who are trying to spin it differently, is still the majority political party, the most popular political movement inside of Haiti today. They have nothing to lose by these paramilitaries. And why do I call these? They're not gangs. They're paramilitaries. They have a military structure. They have a commander. They have lieutenants. You know, they have they have a structure that operates in a military fashion. And while we see that there are some elements in the police that appear to be fighting back with aid that's provided by Canada and the United States, the truth is there still remains at least over half of the police who have ties and or are members of those very same paramilitary gangs. Why? Because that was the very structure that was created again by Martha Lee and then later by Jovenel Moise in order to create and use the police as cutouts to control those gangs and to give them their marching orders, right? So that they had, again, plausible deniability. Uh, so I don't see any, 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 any reason, given the current situation, given that this is maintaining their client government in power, this is maintaining and keeping Ariel Henry in power while they create a structure, a foreign-created structure, as a way toward new elections that they can call credible. And, you know, it's already pretty clear who the candidates that they're going to run are shaping, you know, are shaping uh, uh, the way that, that those elections are shaping at this point. We know that there's going to be the window dressing of other political parties that they are going to fund and help to create to give it a note of legitimacy. We know that at some point the U.S. press is going to jump in and declare that they were free and fair despite the fact that there could be tens of thousands of Haitians marching in the streets uh, condemning electoral fraud, which is exactly what happened during Marta Lee and Jovenel Moise, both of those sets of elections. And the U.S. came in, declared a winner. The, the, the international press just jumped on the bandwagon. If you say it often enough, you know, even though they're... And, and by the way, those, those protests of tens of thousands against Jovenel Moise, the fraud that put him into, into power, continued all the way through up to the point that he was murdered. You can trace the direct line to those fraudulent elections. Did the U.S. care? No. That was who they wanted in office. And, of course, a dutiful foreign press, whether that, and, and of course, the European Union, all those, all the non-governmental organizations, they all piled on, did their press conference and said, hey, this is fair enough. It's fair enough for Haiti. And we'll see that again, right? That's all they want to do is go from line A to line B directly to elections so that they then can say that this is a legitimate government, even though those legitimate forces that have been fighting for an independence from the United States independence from the core group have been sidelined, have been continuously sidelined by U.S. operatives, by the core group, by foreign powers who really do not have an interest in having Haitians run Haiti. This is really about them controlling the situation again. And, of course, what's that saying? You know, how many times do you repeat the same thing? You know, how many times do you do the same thing expecting a different outcome? Well, that would be tantamount to the United States. Well, in, in any shape or form, what they have planned for Haiti is tantamount to insanity because it is, again, not a change, a fundamental change in U.S. foreign policy. It is not allowing Haitians to run Haiti. It is, at its core, intervention in Haiti's internal political affairs and shaping the outcome of its politics to suit 
U.S. foreign policy as it has been in the past. Kevin, can you say just a, a, a word or two about the both the current situation on the ground in Haiti? I know you, you talked a little bit about it. And also, um, things are, have become quite brutal at the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the treatment of uh, folks coming in. We've seen battles now and rushes for the, uh, for the U.S. border and all kinds of violence. Um, and now they're getting ready to sort of... Um, uh, Restrain the uh, the article. What is it? Forty two or twenty four? I was my dyslexia. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna withdraw the uh, regulations uh, re- regarding the COVID. So, what's that mean for Haitians? What, are are they in those crushes? Are they dying in those crushes that we see at the border now? Uh, absolutely, and, and and I believe it was it was called Title Forty Two, um, and. You know, Biden created this special humanitarian parole program. We've talked about this before, right? Which which affected Venezuela, Haiti, um, and Ukraine, right? And it was a special way for them uh, to apply if they had sponsors in the United States that they could apply to come to the country legally. And, of course, what that did was it, to do that, you had to have a passport in Haiti. So that created mad rushes at the immigration centers, uh, the, the passport centers and the immigration offices in Haiti to get passports. I mean, literally people killing each other to get those passports. It led to police corruption where police have been uh, 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 demanding sex from women in order to get to the front of the line, demanding money from people in order to get to the front of the line. It's created a whole other level of corruption on top of what already existed inside of Haiti. And yet, yes, you're, and you're right. As far as at the border, there's still thousands of Haitians who are trying to get into this country because they don't want to return back to that nightmare that was created created by U.S. foreign policy. I believe that argument can be made extremely strong, that the plus 13-year United Nations military occupation of Haiti, where they controlled Haiti's institutions, that led to the current nightmare that Haitians are having to undergo and face today inside of that country, is a direct result of the Bush administration's lies, working with the right wing in Haiti, with business with sweatshop owners like Andy Ped, working with the small elite in Haiti in order to overthrow the democratically elected government of Lavalas and Jean-Bertrand Daristide in 2004. What we're seeing today is a direct result of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and that's what makes it even sadder that rather than taking responsibility for that, Haitians who are trying to flee that very nightmare created by U.S. foreign policy are being demonized, are being whipped, are being, uh, they're, they're, you know, it's well known that they are treated among the worst when they are seen in large numbers at the border, by the border patrol, by border agents, U.S. immigration uh, services. And that's why now they have a new tactic. They try not to be in large groups. They try to separate into smaller groups and sort of blend in with other nationals trying to get into the country because they know that if enough Haitians get together, they're going to be whipped on horseback. That's what they believe, which is what happened to them, right? Right. They're going to be abused. You know, they, 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 and they, yet they are desperate to get in here to escape that hell that the United States has a direct responsibility for creating in the country. Um, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a travesty, but there are bright lights of hope too, right? There's some, all, I should say that there are some people who are committed to staying in their country, 
who are committed to fighting the paramilitaries in their neighborhoods, who are committed at the grassroots level in their communities to holding on. And those are the people that myself and others have been trying to, to, to amplify their voices, to give a voice to the voiceless, because those people do exist and they're hanging on to their life. What, um, I mean, it's hard. I always ask this question, but we have to ask it. What does the U.S. gain from sustaining this kind of suffering, this destabilized country? It would seem like we'd give them some problems in the region. We know Haiti has been used as a drug uh, transshipment point. Well, what does the U.S. gain? I mean, the uh, well, just hit that. Help me understand. Well, you know, there's, there's the historical argument. There is, of course, the geopolitical argument, all of which makes sense. There is the economic argument, which has two parts. One, of course, is Haiti's uh, role as the bottom rung of the price of labor in the region, right? Uh, all uh, Many companies who are doing business in, and with Honduran workers and Mexican workers or other workers in the region, all they have to do is to threaten to move their operation to Haiti where there's cheaper labor, and they can force those other labor markets down in their price, right? So Haiti plays that role of holding down the bottom of the price of labor for international companies, you know, such as Gildan Active, where, uh, you know, Fruit of the Loom, companies that are doing apparel manufacturing in the region who require that kind of manual labor. Um, it plays that economic role in the region. And then, of course, you know, Jean-Bertrand Aristide has been, you know, has been raked across the coals. There's been such a disinformation campaign about him, uh, lies that have been told about him. But one of the things he did when he was reelected in 2004 was that he had a study done by several international um, uh, uh, geologists who did a study of Haiti's mineral wealth. And one of the things that they discovered was there's hundreds of tons of lithium under Haiti's soil. And so it is among one of the reasons that many of us believe that the United States would like to, and by the way, they're, they're still doing gold mining there under illegal contracts, sweetheart deals that were done with the Martelly regime and with the Jovenel Moise regime. There are still Canadian and U.S. companies that are mining gold inside of Haiti today under armed guard, oh. and they're hiring mercenaries. They have mercenaries that are protecting their operations. They're U.S. mercenaries, right? Former military guys who form their own companies who are then hired by these mining companies to go in there and protect these operations that are still going on in several regions of the country. Now, uh, the U.S., I don't know if you look at the price of lithium, you look what, what a troy ounce of it is worth, you might get some sense Huge. of what this is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's immense. So that, that is one of the main reasons because as if you look at the industries that rely on lithium when it comes to electronics um you'll see that it is a very precious uh commodity and so oh, yeah. you know that's one of the big rushes it's not just about electing a haitian president or haitian government that's supple that's a that, you know the decline of the u.s it's also this big push to change haiti's constitution because the 1987 constitution says that while it doesn't use the word nationalize, right? What it does say is that Haiti's mineral wealth, Haiti's wealth, national wealth, is for the collective body of Haitians. It's in its language of the Constitution. So without saying nationalize, it's saying basically it's nationalized. And this is why there's this mad rush to have 
along with presidential elections and legislative elections, parliamentary elections, this constitutional referendum that would change that part of Haiti's constitution that would then allow foreign ownership of mineral wealth directly inside of the country. Right now, they've got to use Haitian intermediaries to get around that in the Constitution. They want to be able to do that directly. And I think that the very proof of it is this push that they began under Jovenel Moise, which they're now, which started under Martelly, but it was really pushed under Jovenel Moise, but it has never been let go and is a key component of what the U.S. is pushing for in Haiti's next election cycle. It's amazing. And what it comes down to, the United States was not meddling and had left the Haitian, let the Haitian people who have demonstrated their belief in self-determination and shown um, that they can run their own government. If we if if the United States had left them alone with the quartet, if you will, um, Haiti would be a thriving, not the poorest country in the world. It would be a thriving sort of middle class country uh, with 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 a great uh, constitution. Well, there was a big, a big. This is a U.S. creation. Yeah, well, there was a big fear in Haiti just recently. You know, the debate about Aristide was opened up anew in a new way that scared the hell out of a lot of those people who depended on the U.S. to to destroy Lavalas and the Lavalas movement. Aristide, what was it, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, had the graduation ceremony at the Aristide University, UNIFA, where thousands of nurses, doctors, lawyers, architects construction managers, all dedicated to social justice, graduated in this immense ceremony that was broadcast wow. all over Haiti and all over, and streamed all over the world. And it wow. immediately called, you know, the truth to the big lie about who Aristide really is, right? The guy who was cast as a dictator who fell on his own sword, who used child soldiers against his opponents, who used gangs against his opponents. All of the things that really became, the, these were projections that became a reality under the PHTK government that the United States supported after the 2010 earthquake. That's the irony of it. But, of course, the truth is that, you know, you don't see many, many dictators who they, who they accuse falsely of all, this, all these just lies upon lies. Um, who goes back to his country and dedicates his life to educating new generations, dedicated to social justice to rebuild the country. And that's reopened the debate on Aristide and Lavalas again. And so that's why if you've recently seen a spate of the lies returning, that's why. Because the genie's out of the bottle and an honest debate and discourse about what his legacy really is has begun in Haiti in a way that it hadn't before. Amazing. All right. We've been speaking with Kevin Pinney. He's a senior producer here at Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. He knows uh, as much about Haiti as uh, anybody else in this world has been covering it for us for the 30 plus years that we have been on the air. Kevin, as always, uh, appreciate the good information. Obviously, stay safe. Come back. Talk to us soon. Thank you so much, you are so welcome. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Now we're going to take a nice long break, maybe two minutes even. We're going to hear some extraordinary music thanks to our technical director, Mr. Mike Biggs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, what's going on in Israel-Palestine and uh, 
going to raise a couple of issues uh, that uh, uh, get your attention. We'll be right back. One hundred days, one hundred nights, and no one may. Jones and the Dap Kings, 100 Days, 100 Nights, on Flashpoints, on Pacific Radio. We turn our attention back to Israel-Palestine. Uh, sort of the latest uh, complaints among many coming out of the uh, Christian community, East Jerusalem, saying the Israelis are getting a little rough. That would be putting it mildly. Uh, we're going to talk more about what's going on on the ground. Uh, we're glad to welcome back Richard Silverstein. Uh, Richard Silverstein writes on security and other issues at Tacon Olum and for numerous other outlets. Um, welcome back to Flashpoints, Richard. Um, maybe we could just start with a little update. Where are we now? Uh, we know that uh, Netanyahu has welcomed back uh, his uh, his sort of um, the minister who made him a little angry and he decided he was going to fire him, but now it's there, happy, happy, uh, moving forward. But it does look like there's an expanding war happening here. We're seeing bombing in, what, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Gaza, rockets coming uh, into into Israel. Uh, this is not looking good. Yeah, good to be with you, uh, Dennis. Um, the update is that Netanyahu, uh, about two weeks ago, fired his defense minister named Yoav Gallant because Gallant went on national television and told Netanyahu to stop the judicial coup. That's the series of legislation that will dismantle the judiciary and leave uh, Netanyahu and his coalition in the Knesset in control of virtually every major aspect of uh, Israeli 
government um, um, regulations and, and actions. So Gallant uh, was in the doghouse because of that, and Bibi ostensibly fired him. But um, within a day or two, uh, 650,000 Israelis protested against what Netanyahu had done. And he decided, A, that he better not fire the guy. And B, that he better agree to a pause, in quotes, in that legislative program, giving time to supposedly negotiate with the opposition a compromise on the legislation, which, by the way, um, has gone nowhere. The, the the, the meetings for to to organize this compromise, um, uh, Netanyahu's forces have uh, made no concessions, so um, that's going to go nowhere. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out um, whether the you know what is going to hit the fan, and he's going to re restart this process, um, which has enraged Israel. Um, Sixty, seventy percent of Israelis oppose the legislative coup, and only about twenty percent of Israelis support it. So um, going back to Gallant, <laughs> this is funny, and typically Israeli politics, um, he was fired supposedly, and Netanyahu didn't formally fire him, so he continued to serve as defense minister, but whenever the two of them were in the same room, Netanyahu made a big flourish about ignoring Gallant and refusing to shake his hand, and now uh, the latest is that he is quote-unquote reinstating Gallant, uh, but you can't reinstate someone you never fired. So go figure that out. Um, yeah. But in terms of what you were talking about, the hostilities, uh, what's interesting about that is that um, Israel has done a huge amount to incite violence by storming Al-Aqsa Mosque twice, arresting 400 Palestinians and videos of the invasion by the Israeli police of this holy site were horrendous. Um, there were two nights of this in a row, and as a result, rockets were fired from Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza towards Israel. Um, but that stopped as well. So my guess is that both sides wanted to make a show of, um, you know, sort of bravado, and uh, but neither side wanted to actually go to full-on war, which is what happened in May 2021. The same types of incitement happened with the Israelis at Al-Aqsa, and that did turn into a full-blown uh, war uh, against Gaza, in which 250 Gazans were killed. So uh, there's a certain level of calm here going on, but the domestic opposition, the pro-democracy protests have not stopped, and so no, nothing is resolved on the domestic front in terms of uh, Bibi's uh, uh, anti-democratic coup. And uh, is it okay to say, is it an exaggeration to say that many of the actions in, uh, in terms of killing the courts has everything to do with the fact that Bibi Netanyahu wants not to be prosecuted and he's using his power as prime minister to stop the prosecution, the prosecution uh, uh, that has been going on for some time in terms of his various uh, uh, darings do? 
absolutely, um, and, it, and it's even broader than that. Certainly, he wants he, he's facing three corruption charges. There's a trial going on now, and if he's convicted, he uh, under current law would be uh, would have to resign. Um, he wants to change that. So even if a prime minister is convicted of a felony of a crime. They can't be forced to resign. So that's one thing. He wants to change the law so that all of the tens of thousands of gifts he accepted from Arnon Milchan, James Packer, and other billionaires would not be a violation of Israeli law, which they are currently. So um, there's a whole bunch of different laws that affect him that he wants to do away with. But in, in addition, he wants to pass a law that it will allow one of his major allies in the governing coalition who has been convicted twice of corruption and tax evasion and currently cannot serve as a minister because of that. He wants to pass a law that will allow this individual to serve as a minister. So there's a whole range of legislation that is in the pipeline. By the way, that legislation is the um, creation uh, of this group called the Kohelet Forum, and the Kohelet Forum, a right-wing Israeli think tank, is funded by a U.S.-based Jewish foundation called the Tikva Fund. The Tikva Fund's chairman is no other than Elliot Abrams. And uh, there are several <laughs> other sort of notable right-wing figures, neocon Jewish figures uh, in the Tikva Fund. Um, but it's funneling millions of dollars to the Kohelet Fund to create this huge um, right-wing coup, basically. And if you want to think about the Federalist, Federalist Society in the United States, that yes. would be similar, except the Federalist Society is focusing on the judiciary, and this coup in Israel is focusing on the judiciary, but it's going to have far broader uh, impact overall. Well. That's really important as well. Uh, we are speaking with Richard Silverstein, and we're talking about, well, Israel-Palestine. All right, Richard, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other issues you've been writing about and thinking about. Uh, we, we now see an extraordinarily violent Israel. Uh, we see settlers viol in violation, open violation of international law, marching marching uh, to uh, the settlements to to join the settlements to expand the settlements total uh, outrage uh, against international law um, is it what rights do the Palestinians have uh, obviously you know the the settlers don't need guns because they've got the entire uh, well-armed Israeli army. But do the Palestinians have a right to bear arms? Can they start? Uh, this is going to obviously get more and more violent, probably. Well, what rights do the Palestinians have uh, to shoot back? Do you think they should have the right to defend themselves? I do. Um, my views on this have changed over the years, but um, I believe, and in, in international law guarantees an occupied um, um, country or an occupied entity, which the Palestinians are and Palestine is, guarantees the right of resistance against the occupying power. 
it doesn't really define exactly what forms resistance can take, but uh, the a United Nations General Assembly resolution says that armed resistance against an occupying power is legitimate, and I agree with that resolution. And I would go further. I think that armed Palestinian armed resistance is legitimate against not only Israeli military and not only against Israeli settlers who are illegally occupying Palestinian land and violating international law, but against Israelis in general. And I'll tell you the reason. That's, this is a controversial uh, concept that I advocate, but let me explain why. Israel makes no distinction between Palestinian militants and Palestinian civilians. And in fact, since the beginning of 2023, 100 Palestinians have been killed and uh, 18 Israelis have been killed. That's a ratio of nearly six to one. And if you go back, and as, as I have over the last 100 years, the ratio is 40,000 Palestinians have been killed and 6,000 Israelis, a similar kind of ratio. So if the occupying power, which is illegally in violation of international law, is killing indiscriminately both civilians and militants, then I do not, I, I cannot in good conscience deny Palestinians the right to defend their occupied land to defend their villages and to defend their fellow Palestinians. I, if, if Israelis want to say that the, the, their army has the right to go into Palestine, which it doesn't, and it has the right to defend so-called defense of Israel by engaging in killing of Palestinians, I refuse to deny Palestinians the same right. So I accept M Malcolm X's um, uh, um, I forget exactly what it is, but uh, by any means necessary, liberation by mm -hmm. any means necessary. So that is what I believe regarding uh, Palestine. Hmm. And, and if I could just add one point go on, to that. Go on. Yeah, yeah. The Israelis talk about Palestinian terror. So every time there is an attack on any Israeli anywhere, whether they be uh, a soldier or a settler, or a civilian within the Green Line, uh, Israeli border. They call that Palestinian terrorism. But they call their own attacks on Palestinians, which kill Palestinian civilians, they call that legitimate self-defense. So I reject that. I say Israel is a state sponsor of terrorism against Palestinians. And the only difference between the Palestinians and the Israelis is that Israel is a state and the Palestinians are not yet a state. And that's because Israel rejects the, the concept. So terrorism is uh, something that I do not, I do not re um, accept the concept that only the Palestinians are terrorists. So, for instance, we, it, it is a fact that uh, the illegal settlements are used by Israeli forces, Israeli troops. The Israeli troops guard the settlements, the illegal uh, settlers, the settlements. Um, so the essentially these, they are military encampments illegally built on Palestinian land, right? The settlers are not civilians. 
they are not just people who are living in a place, in a residence, like you and I live in a house or an apartment. They live in stolen Palestinian land, and they are armed to the teeth, and they are willing to kill Palestinians. They are willing to destroy Palestinian farms, destroy the olive orchards, etc. They not only are armed themselves, but they are protected, if you can believe this, by the Israeli army. So whenever the settlers go out to engage in mayhem and, and what I call terror attacks against Palestinians, they, they, the settlers are armed and the soldiers are protecting the settlers. So the settlers are an arm of the state. They are, in all effects, the state itself. The state, its policies support the terrorists, the the um, the Israeli settlers, and is the vice versa. The Israeli settlers are um, supporting the state itself. So I make no distinction between the state and the settlers. It's all the same thing, and this goes uh, along with the concept that Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem have advocated that Israel is one apartheid state from the river to the sea. It's all the same thing. You know, it's... Uh it is it is uh sort of troubling but it is that the um you know i think the lack of reporting richard the the stuff we're talking about now it it doesn't even come close to the consciousness it, you know is it do you think is the us prayer what do you why are Americans so confused. If they this conversation, you're talking about the rights of Palestinian to fight back. I mean that that would drive 98 <laughs> percent of corporate journalists, you know, into the corner hiding because they knew if they put it up, they'd disappear the next day. How, well, yeah. What's the problem? How, what what is, has Biden said anything about this new renegade government in Israel? Have any problems well, with it? He, he has said uh, about two weeks ago, he said to Bibi explicitly, and this is unprecedented for a U.S. president, he said, quote unquote, walk away from this legislative plan. Walk away. He didn't say walk away temporarily and then come back to it if you can't get a compromise. He said walk away. Now, Bibi doesn't give a crap, pardon my language, about what Biden has to say. But the fact that a U.S. president told a Palestinian, a, uh, I'm sorry, an Israeli prime minister what he should do about an internal Israeli domestic uh, um, legislation is really unprecedented. Uh, I'm sure that there's been sort of like uh, under the table or in backroom conversations between presidents and prime ministers before, but this was unprecedented. And we should add, and I think I've mentioned this in a past interview on your show, that um, eight U.S. Congress members um, put out a very strong statement denouncing not only the you know, legislative coup, but linking it to the way Israel is treating the Palestinians and calling for the U.S. to restrict aid to Israel, um, all of which are unprecedented. Um, until now, we've had, like Bernie Sanders talk about conditioning aid, and we've had a candidate here and there. But this was a joint uh, statement by these eight uh, House members, including Sanders himself. So uh, that's unprecedented. And I wanted to move into uh, one other thing that you mentioned, which was... We'll just have a minute left. Have a minute. Go on. 
I, I just wanted to mention that uh, one of the major media did a profile of the family whose two daughters were killed in a terror attack on the West Bank. But I've never seen any major media have a profile of a Palestinian family that lost a child in a terror attack by the Israeli army. And that's the imbalance that we have in the world media. Amazing. Well, really appreciate uh, the reporting, Richard. Uh, you do uh, report at uh, Tikkun Olam. You've been reporting for a number of other outlets, including the Middle East Eye, the New Arab, Jacobin Magazine. Uh, and uh, you do good work at your website. Thank you for taking the time out and spending so much time with us, uh, Richard. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dennis. All right. Be safe. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take just a very short 30-second break and come right back, and we're going to play a little sound for you. Nice sound. Jones and the Dap Kings, 100 Days, 100 Nights on Flashpoints, Pacifica Radio. Well, no Justins, no peace. You know what I'm talking about. Those two young legislators have been reinstated and they start a little mini-revolution in support of the end of uh, gun violence. Because that's what they're all about. That's where this started. They spoke up. They had a protest. And uh, the old boys tried to get rid of them. But they couldn't put their finger on that sound. Today, the second Justin was restored, Justin Pearson. And uh, these are some of the words he shared for that restoration. Listen. Yeah. Their allegiance is to the way that things are. Yeah. Their allegiance 
allegiance is to business as usual. Uh -huh. Their allegiance is to the National Rifle Association. Uh -huh. Their allegiance is to the Tennessee Firearms Association. When we went to the well of the house myself, Representative Johnson and Representative Jones, what, what we did was say we have an allegiance to a people. Yeah. yeah. People who are tired of business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. No Justins, no peace. No Justins, no peace. Both those young legislators are back, restored. They're going to be together uh, in the room tomorrow fighting uh, to limit weapons of mass destruction that are destroying us. That's why these old boys tried to get rid of these guys, the Justins, because they were telling the truth. So congratulations today to you, Justin Pearson number two to be restored and all congratulations to all the beautiful people who stood up next to you who locked arms with you who really uh, gave inspiration and hope to many of us who have been fighting for freedom and for human rights for many years stay tuned That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>